Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 327, 327 of the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Welcome aboard. Uh, happy to be back after a couple of weeks, and I'm sitting here with uh, Brendan Maluli and Tim Maluli. Hey, guys. I think we should start with the one that nearly half of investors sold in March. Yeah, there was an article from Think Advisor. They just got some new survey results. Uh, the, the survey was done by Magnify Money. And we'll link to it in the show notes if you want to look at all the statistics that they brought up. But it was like the like the headline says it was talking about how almost half of investors out there sold their stock or at least a stock or or a holding or they sold something during March during the drawdown. Uh, and now most of the people that sold uh, say that they regret it. What's your takeaway from that headline at least? Two things from from that. The, they cited that the primary reason given for this answer was people wanted to have cash on hand in the event of a recession. Holy cow, like how many videos and how many podcasts have we done telling people that they should have an emergency fund set up not tied to the stock market, not invested. It should be somewhere safe because the moment you're going to need it, is when you have to sell everything at 65 cents on the dollar, like a lot of people probably did. So that was the first thing. The second thing was another point that they mentioned, a clear pattern from the survey was that people have been checking their accounts far more frequently now in the last six months than ever before. I mean, up until that point, up until the market went down in February and March, it had kind of been we hadn't seen a drop like that in such a long time. So people might have been lulled to sleep by like the good performance in the market and then they get shocked by what happened. So then it kind of leaves a scar mentally for them and they don't want to get burned again or they want to make sure that the trade that they placed, the stocks, the stocks that they sold or bought during that time are, are doing well. So while I don't think it's a good thing that people are checking their accounts more often, I mean... During the over the last couple of months, it you can't help but say like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me at least. I think, I don't know. There's there's nothing scientific to this, but I think I've I've heard people talk in the past about how after you, uh, after you sell an investment, people tend to watch it even more closely than than when they still owned it because they don't want to be, you know, the idiot who sold and then have the thing go straight back up or bought and and have it go down or, or vice versa. And so I think maybe people if they did take action during March or just paying closer attention because to make sure uh, they made the right decision. Yeah. And unfortunately, if, if they sold during March, then they didn't. And maybe that leads to them saying that, that they regret it. But yeah, I mean, to Tom's initial point, I think if you, if you don't have money set aside outside of your market investments to have cash ready to go in an event of an emergency, uh, that's, that's one strike. And strike two is you know, if, if you do have a portfolio and there's any any chance that, that you could be breaking into that, maybe you, you, you have an emergency fund, but like the second layer of defense would be this portfolio, then it probably shouldn't be 100% in the market either. Right. Right. And so the idea that you had to take action in the heat of the moment to change, you know, the allocation so that you would be prepared in the event of like a, you know, a 
prolonged economic downturn or, or just a stock market decline, uh, not, not a good spot to put yourself in. And that's, that's preventable. But unfortunately, after a year like 2019 in the stock market, it gets really difficult to sit on cash in a bank account or bonds in a portfolio when, when the market was up a ton. And now we're seeing it again this year. And so if you sold during March, don't don't be the person who then like panic buys back in because of performance since then. I mean, there's been ample opportunity for that, but the best the best indication of future behavior is past behavior. And so if you freaked out and sold last time, I think the message just is that your allocation's out of whack, and that could be for a number of reasons. Well, old stock guy says when you sell a stock, don't look back. Good, easy. Good luck with that one. Yeah, easier yeah. said than done. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, it's it's always hard to look back after you sold something uh, and see it con- see it move higher because you do feel a little stupid uh, doing that. But man, oh man, uh, we become emotional gatekeepers. I think during periods like we had in February, March, and April, where the market was just all over the place and people were losing their minds over this, and so it's. It's hard when you're panicking, you're checking your account, you're seeing your account going down day by day. It's hard to see the forest for the trees and to say, I'm going to hit that tree because I'm going 95 miles an hour straight at it. But to kind of step back and say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This is for retirement or this is for a purpose that I don't need this money right now. It's very hard to keep your cool when the world's on fire. Yeah, I think it's a lot. It's it's probably a case of people tying up the wrong dollars. Like you said, if it's if you can if you can step back and say this is for retirement, it's easier to not panic, but I feel like a lot of people have money in the market and they have no idea what it's for. They just think I should be Good investing um, and there's no real clear-cut end game in mind, so when something in the short term happens, yeah, they're they're more likely to to freak out and want to preserve what they have. I think you also have to understand that what happened earlier this year is what you're signing up for when you put money into the stock market. The risk is literally always there for a decline of that magnitude. That that ha- was previously, we hadn't seen one of that velocity before, meaning roughly 30, 35% in six weeks, but like it's on the table. And to ignore that or think that it won't happen to you because you're like smarter than everybody else or something is is incredibly naive. So you, you, you need to be prepared for that. You're right. And, and the, we've got quotes here on the bookshelf from Warren Buffett, from Charlie Ellis, from Charlie Munger, all saying the same thing. If you can't stomach the idea of buying something and then next week seeing it down 35 I think Buffett used 50%. You have no business being in the market. Right. Or or you or you take the the investment that has the the possibility of doing that and pair it with something that won't that won't do that and come up with some blended thing where you, you know, maybe you can't stomach a 50% drawdown. So, hey, guess what? You shouldn't be 100% stocks. But could you could you handle 15, 20? 25. All right, let's find a blended portfolio that's going to make that happen for you. And this kind of leads into, you know, the discussions that we're having right now in October of 2020. There's a lot of people who are calling worried about the election results, and we're not taking a stand on either side of this. But my point has been, and maybe you guys feel differently, 
We got through a 35% drawdown from a totally unknown event, a pandemic that hit us. I, I think we can manage a presidential election. I've been through a lot of these now, and every one of them has been, this could be the election that changes the world. Yeah, I think it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter what the reason why the market goes down 35% in six weeks, whether it's because of a pandemic or if the market goes down because of an election or the market goes down because of fill in the blank. Like the, right. the, the reason doesn't matter. It's just whether or not you can sit through it. And, you know, going back to what I was saying before about how people potentially got like lulled to sleep by the market just continuing to chug along in 2019, you said it's up over 20%. The same thing surprisingly is happening now. It's just they have a very short term memory in terms of the market. What happened in 2019, you know, people make the joke nowadays that like, oh, stocks can only go up. It's a joke, but I think some people actually forgot that stocks can go down. And then they did. And it seems like they've forgotten again. It's like, they did, it was six they, months ago. And they did in 2018 too. Stocks were right. down for the year in 2018. And in the fourth quarter, we were down over 20%. Yeah. yeah. In one quarter. Right. right. Yeah. So, so, so these things just, these things are going to happen. So yeah. you got to be positioned accordingly. Like if, if, if you have cash flow needs, you need to have money ready to go out and support that when the stock side of the portfolio is taking a crap. And yeah. you're going to have years like, like like last year in 2019 where the stock side makes up for having a Everything down year works. in 2018. Yeah. Right. yeah, so I think, I mean, I, I agree with your point that if we can get through something that completely blindsided us like a pandemic, we can definitely get through something like an election where, you know, we know the date of when it's going to happen. Um, I think the we problem don't is you got you to gotta remove the reason for it as if yeah. as if there's ever like one singular reason for everything that occurs but like just just look at it in plain terms like if if you had a portfolio and you were comfortable or at least not freaked out to the extent that you had to make dramatic changes earlier this year then yeah i think i think you're i think that was a pretty good test run if you want to call it that exactly. meaning meaning that's about as volatile a six-week stretch as we've ever seen. Yeah. That was a true bear market drawdown. Like, you got to the depths of it, and if you didn't feel the need to panic sell out, then I think you're going to be okay making it through whatever is to come next and for whatever reason. Uh, right. I, I, you know, obviously yeah. there are going to be small adjustments along the way, but, but you just don't want to put yourself in a position where you're, like, learning your true risk tolerance and selling at 65 cents on the dollar as a result. Like, don't don't put yourself in that position. So if, if, if you had feelings last time, remember them. Yeah, I think it's important to, if you if you did, if you are one of these people that sold and now regret it, don't make that, don't, don't make the mistake again. Don't go back to 100% stocks if you were 100, 100% stocks and sold out in February yeah. or March. Yeah. Don't do that, because so you're gonna do it again. You will. Trivia question. So market went down in the, beginning of the year due to a pandemic everybody is freaked out about the upcoming election that could change the world what was the reason given for the stock market drop in the fourth quarter of 2018 yeah the fed i thought it was china like tariffs and trade wars and stuff like that i mean that's all we heard that year yeah 
the, the Fed was tightening and we were doing all the tariff nonsense and right. it wasn't good for anybody, so we all freaked out. And I think it was January 3rd or 4th, J, uh, Jay Powell came out and said, oh, only kidding about all that tightening. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to hike anymore. Yeah. And yeah. we were off to the races. Tim, we had another article that we wanted to talk about as well. Yeah, there was another article from Think Advisor as well. Uh, I was talking about some of the advantages of Roth conversions for retired investors and they highlighted some of the the main benefits for doing a Roth conversion but I, I thought it would just be a good opportunity to talk about the ins and outs of Roth conversions the good and the bad the the right time or the wrong time to do it what do you think are the the main benefits to a Roth conversion and when is when is the right time for someone to do it We've had a couple of conversations with uh, some folks this year who have said this might be the year for me to do a Roth conversion because taxes have to go up in the future. I don't necessarily know if that's really the right approach, if that's the right answer. Because if you're realizing a lot of income this year, to do a Roth conversion on top of it, you could very well be pushing yourself into a, another higher tax bracket. Right. And so, a lot of times, Brendan, you and I talk about doing Roth conversions when someone has um, only worked for part of the year, or maybe they have lower income this year for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there are multiple moving parts to this, the two most important of which are not only the tax climate as it exists today, and, and may, yeah, maybe maybe tax rates are amongst the lowest we'll we'll see for you know the the next several decades we we don't know for sure we don't know. outside of our control but but they're pretty low right now um, but but outside of that it's also what what tax bracket are you currently in how much extra income would put you into another one and and what does your situation project to be like down the road Out, outside of uh, tax brackets changing which they could how much income are you going to have in the future and may there be better opportunities down the road, even even if let's say taxes are higher. Um, and and you can kind of like jump through these exercises by looking where income taxes were uh, before the tax cuts and and Jobs Act in 2017, and and say, all right, well maybe if we were back to there, uh, and I had this much income, like what's you, you got to try to do apples to apples the best you can, even though. It's impossible to because we don't know what future tax rates will be like. But in general, I think your best opportunity to do a conversion is, is maybe a year where you uh, retire uh, and are, are going to be in a lower tax bracket as a result of just living off of uh, accumulated savings, uh, depending on your situation. Or if, if you work half of a year, like, like Tom alluded to, maybe you're going to have half as much income as you normally would, and, and maybe that's an opportunity to recognize some, some extra income now uh, while converting to a Roth. Uh, the, and the biggest benefits to that would be tax-free compounding until you decide to take it out in the future, and hopefully you let that go for as long as you possibly can. You know, I, I think on top of that, I just I would say that a lot of people have been thinking about it uh, because it's, it's a topic getting thrown out uh, because tax rates are low and, and one of the candidates for president is talking about potentially raising them on certain people. And so, you know, it's it's worth exploring, but, you know, you, you read a lot of articles about Roth, Roth conversions and, the, and their benefits, but really the answer is, is to get some information from not only your tax preparer, but uh, then sharing that with your financial advisor so they can say specifically for you, uh, is this a good time to do it? Uh, is there a strategy here where you could do it over a number of years and, and have it be to your benefit? Um, but y you really need to dig into the details and, and get information uh, from, from multiple professionals unless you know your advisors uh, both. 
Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say they they were they pointed out in the article how it can you know Roth conversions can help potentially improve your retirement income projections if you don't have to account for you know taking money out of a traditional IRA and paying taxes on that and just for estate planning purposes as well the money has already been taxed uh, so on on top of what you're saying too that's another reason to run it by your financial planner I wouldn't just wake up tomorrow and say I'm going to do a Roth conversion today. So. Yeah, don't don't leave this <laughs> to more to it. Yeah, yeah, don't leave this to Google to give you the information. This is something that you really need to coordinate between your tax preparer and your financial planner. Yeah, and and in and in almost all cases here you're going to have to be prepared to to account for that extra income tax that that you're going to owe. Uh, out of pocket to have it really be beneficial to your financial plan in the long run, at least at least in my experience from from what I've seen crunching numbers for folks, whether whether that's coming from savings or uh, you're gonna if it's early in the year and maybe you're gonna you know jack up your uh, uh, withholdings on your uh, salary if if you're still employed. There are ways to to work it out, but the tax money has to come from somewhere, and and uh, if you're gonna withhold it on the distribution, I feel like the the long run ramifications of that are gonna you're gonna have to let that tax free money compound for quite a while to to make up uh, the difference there. Uh, on top of Roth conversions being a hot topic this year, um, potentially changing your domicile is also another hot topic of I feel like for for 2020. And there was an article from Worth.com uh, talking about four factors to consider before making your second home, your domicile. And this is another thing that you don't want to just wake up the next, the, the tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to change my domicile. Uh, mostly because it's not that easy. One of the things they, one of the first things they pointed out in the article was that it's not as easy as just declaring that this home, this second home is now my domicile. Like it's like Michael Scott in the office. Like you can't just declare bankruptcy by saying it out loud. Right. Like there's a little <laughs> bit more to it. I feel like people, um, whether they have a primary residence in maybe a city and they have a second house somewhere not in the city, they, they might have been spending more time at their second home this year thinking, maybe I'll flip my domicile to the second home for this year. Not as easy as you might think. No, it's not. Yeah, there, there are a lot of rules that you have to follow uh, to make that official. And I think you're opening yourself up to a lot of risk for uh, an audit if you're not actually doing what, what you're uh, claiming to be doing. So. Uh, definitely not not recommended there. So it's got to be an, an actual uh, move of domicile with with the corresponding uh, you know and like a pretty permanent move too. Yeah, you know? I I think first and foremost, like I don't I don't think you should be making decisions about where to live just based on taxes alone because like we talk with investments all the time about not letting you know taxes dictate your investment decisions. Like you're. Overall, your portfolio still needs to be like an appropriate portfolio for you and your circumstances, regardless of the tax ramifications. And I think that the same goes for this. So like if you could pick up today and move to a different place where you, where your tax situation might be different, property or state income tax or what, whatever the case may be, and, and you'll be just as happy, then, then great, like totally, totally do it. But I think the important note there was the last thing. That you'll be just as happy, and and right. there's a, there's a lot at play when it comes to you know decisions to just uproot and leave, meaning like family and and routines and and people and things and all all the aspects of your life that you enjoy. And I think taxes are on the list, but they're nowhere near the top of it. I think that 
part of the whole tax conversation has to be a fair amount of what I call being reasonable. I'll give you an example. We've got a uh, client who is looking to purchase a home. We're going to need to sell some stocks. Um, he really doesn't want to do it. Uh, but there's really no other way around it. And so I sat down with him and laid out a couple of scenarios and said, look, if we go this route, uh, you're going to have to write a check for about $2,500 in capital gains taxes. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I said, going the way that we originally talked about, you're going to be writing a check for about 13 grand in taxes. And he was like, you know, that's not so bad either, considering the amount of money that we were raising. And he was okay with it. So we have this big boogeyman called taxes, but sometimes when you do the math and you look at, okay, long-term capital gains tax rate is 20%, what is that going to mean in dollars and cents uh, for me if I'm looking to raise money, take money out of the market to do something with it, to buy a house, to do something else? I'll also tack on to this conversation that I, I did get an email uh, from someone who is looking to relocate like out of the country. They want to become a citizen of Uruguay. Apparently there's a lot of tax benefits to it. I was afraid to click on the link because I thought it might be take me to a weird place. Kind of to Brendan's point, I hope that if they do that, they enjoy spending time in Uruguay and not just for the tax benefits. Yeah, but. like you should live where you want to live and, right. and consider, I mean, obviously like bake in like the cost of living there like I understand that that is an aspect of it too but like I'm not I'm not sure that I would just make a decision like that solely based on the income tax situation or, or the savings that it'll throw off to you like if you save a bunch of money on tax but have no friends and family within 200 miles of you then like I mean if, if that's the life you want to live then that's great but like personally I, I think there's a little more to it than that and I think a lot of people throw around these ideas and they, they don't actually mean this stuff because they haven't considered what moving away from a place they might have been their entire life would uh, would actually be like. So should I share the Chicago story? Yeah, go ahead. At the end of 1988, I had a job offer to go work in Chicago. I worked as a broker on Long Island and so this was a big move. Uprooting myself and my fiance, now wife, uh, to move out to Chicago. She quit her job with the intention of looking for a job when we settled down in Chicago. For weeks and weeks and weeks ahead of this move, we did one of these Ben Franklin pros on one side, cons on the other. Here's the pros of moving to Chicago. Here are the cons of moving to Chicago. The one con that was on that, on that side of the ledger was we'll be far away from our family and friends. Well, sometimes stuff just doesn't balance out on a piece of paper. We didn't realize until we were out in Chicago how far away our family and friends were. And that one con outweighed all the positives by a factor of 10. And so you really have to think about what Brendan said. You've got to be happy where you wind up because you're going to be there for a while. Yeah. And so you really need to think it through, not just the numbers. So I've been accused of being a numbers guy and a numbers guy only. You have to look at the whole picture. It's, it's really very important. So it's fun to have conversations with clients who say, hey, I'm thinking about you know, getting out of New York and moving to Florida. Okay, let's talk, let's talk it through, okay? And so we help 
to paint the entire picture so they can see the number side, but we also try and talk a little bit about the personal side too. So it's important. It needs to be part of the equation. As you said, you're, if, you, if you're, if you're going to make a move, plan on like actually being there. So if, if the whole, whole idea of like a second residence is some kind of like tax arbitrage, I would caution that that's a lot more work than you probably think it is. That should yeah. be number you know, 10, 11, or 12 on the importance list. Yeah, you know, the, the tax the tax angle. From a technical standpoint, I mean, the you have to prove to the states that you know you're you have established a new domicile and you like essentially permanently left spent left the old one number yeah. of days. There are a number of different factors that you have to prove, so it, it needs to be a relatively permanent thing. It, it's it, just because you spent a lot of time there in 2020 maybe because of the pandemic, doesn't mean that you can change it for 2020, you get the tax benefits, and then flip it back in 2021. Like you said, you mentioned an audit before. They said in the article, 2020 audits aren't going to start for another two years. So yeah. that's going to be pretty pretty tough to prove if you tried to do a quick flip flip-flop one year. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 327. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you on the next episode.